And I was on the path on the Sunday night and the phone rang at about eight o'clock. Uh, I picked up the phone, I goes, yep, yeah, Long Kitchen, Simon. Yep, yeah, hi, mate. My name's uh, Matt Moran. And I was just wondering if you've got time for a, a bit of a chat. I goes, mate, I'm in the middle of service. Like, call me back tomorrow. And I put the phone down. And Andy's looking at me. He goes, who was that? And I goes, some guy called Matt Moran. And I looked at him, I goes, I should have taken that phone call, shouldn't I? And he goes, yeah, probably. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. With the evolution of our culinary landscape has been a push to raise the bar in the suburbs, not just hubs of the community, but dining destinations in their own right, delivering the sort of food one historically might head to the CBD for. What are the challenges of creating a great suburban restaurant? Simon Sandal is the chef and owner of Baronia Kitchen in Baronia Park, Sydney. Simon, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Anthony? I'm good. It's good to have you on the show. You um, come from the world of one of Australia's best restaurants with Aria and multiple hats and so many awards, and you took off to the suburbs. What's it been like creating a restaurant in the suburbs? Oh, look, it's been, mate, there's no no question. It's, um, well, it's been exciting for one, um, but it's, you know, obviously with the last few years that everyone's gone through, it's, it's had its challenges, but, you know, at the same time through them challenges, it's sort of, you know, helped push the restaurant to a, a whole new dimension at the same time. So it's, if that makes sense, but it's, you know, we've, you know, obviously we opened up Baronia, um, in 2018, um, you know, with a, a year of, of trading and then we, we hit this pandemic, um, which like everybody else in the Sydney and the world, it, it scared the living bejeebies out of us all, you know what I mean? So it was, you know, you think, you know, I sort of built a business with so many different arms to it. You just think to yourself, you know, I've always had this, you know, this mentality of trying to carry create different revenue streams so that you know if something falls off that you can pick it up on the uh, on the other side you know to keep you going because you know the restaurant game can be quite fickle um you know and and you know then you get a pandemic thrown into the scenario and you know you just think your whole world's falling falling down on you um so it was it was it was you know it's, it's had its challenges but then at the the flip side is you know through the pandemic and when we were able to open back up because you know there was all this working from home and um and and stuff that it, it sort of push people to you know check out what's around them a little bit more which sort of gave us that that so much more exposure um, you know, and it's just, it has helped grow the business, but at the same time, you know, you, you know, through that growth, you've, you know, you've obviously had a lot of downtime with, with not trading, you know, so there's been a, there's a, been a pile of debt that you've had to sort of incur and sort of try and navigate your way through to, you know, um, to get that paid off, and you know, and that's 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 been challenging. But you know, I'm I'm having said all that, I'm very very grateful for where we're at, and you know, you know, Baronia in itself is just such a beautiful space and such a beautiful business and restaurant, and you know, it's it's I'm grateful. I'm I'm grateful to to be here. To be honest with you. 
I want to explore what you've created there, but you know, you were an important cog in the ARIA wheel for so long. Take us back to that time when you made the decision to, to venture and, and open a restaurant in the suburbs. Well, I mean, I mean, I arrived, I'm originally from the UK, Anthony, as you probably gathered. Um, but I, <laughs> you know, I, I got here in 1995 and I, I, Prior to that, I was living in Africa for a year and, um, you know, I came with this silly goatee beard and hair down to my, you know, near to my bum and, you know, I'd been travelling the world for, for a few years and, you know, I got to Sydney and sort of, you know, it was about time I got a job and a friend of mine was working at the Sydney Opera House at the time and um, he said, mate, come and, come and work at the Opera House and, you know, so I got into an introduction there. I'd actually applied for a couple of jobs and got turned down, believe it or not. I was quite surprised, um, one of them being the Park Hyatt. Um, and, you know, my first job actually in Australia was the Orient Hotel down at the Rocks, flipping about 800 steaks a day, and it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, it was, you know, it was a bit of party and just enjoying life. And then, yeah, like I say, I got this opportunity at the Opera House and I sort of took that and, you know, the rest sort of just sort of, it just happened. I mean, I, the first, the first, I remember the first three weeks of being at the Sydney Opera House and I was working with a guy called David Sampson and he's, he's one of my best mates to this day. And, you know, I sort of hit him up straight away and said, you know, um, is there any chance of sponsorship and staying in the country? And he was like, look, mate, I've only known you for a couple of weeks and, you know, let's just see what happens. And little did I know behind the scenes, he was, um, after about six months of being there, he was actually putting all my, and speaking to the right people to, you know, get this residency thing happening. And look, and I'm forever grateful of what he did for me in them times. But the first three weeks at the Opera House, um, we had this, and it's still to this day, the biggest um, sit-down event at the Sydney Opera House. Um, and it was it was 3,500 people on the forecourt for this um, Sunday um, American sort of... Um, institutional dinner you know um you know i was his sous chef at the time my sous chef at the time um his father i think passed away and he had to go back to new zealand and dave was sort of you know overlooking and organizing the bulk of it but he came to me and said you know can you look after the food side of things? And I'd never done anything like that. You know what I mean? And I just went, you know what, let's have a crack. And, you know, so I was sort of working very closely with Dave and organising kitchen plans and, you know, and, you know, there was four lots of kitchens and, you know, I was this, you know, young 23, 24-year-old and I had all these agency staff come in and they were like grown men and they're looking at me because, man, I've I've always had this ability of looking 10 years younger than what I really am. And, uh, you know, I, was, I had 40, 45 of these agency staff prepping all these, all this food. And they're like, who's this little whippersnipper, you know, you know, coordinating this, you know, this food side of this massive event, which was interesting to say the least. 
And I've, I've, I've actually still, I can remember we, we basically did this chicken and asparagus terrine. And um, I'm like thinking, how the hell am I doing all this? And I mean, whilst Dave was a great mentor and, and you know, gave me a lot of guidance, there was a lot of thinking on your, on your feet. You just had to get on and get it done. And I can, look, I've still got the recipe somewhere at home, you know, and I can remember getting like 120 kilos of chicken breast that we had to turn into this chicken mousse and we had, you know, like 70 boxes of asparagus that we had to peel down and layer out through this train and steam them all in this, in the combi ovens and, you know, and, and basically orchestrate this event. And it was, you know, and then on the on the day of the event, it was working with people like Yanni and, and Gay Bilson, um and you know and we had four different kitchen teams and it was a huge success but for me from from a learning capacity it was just like this is just you know i'm I'm three weeks into a job at the sydney opera you know i mean you know i always said being back in the uk and i know i knew i wanted to come to australia from the age of 15 um and and you know my brother came here for the bicentenary and and travelled around in Australia and, and, you know, like every other POM, I used to see and watch um, Prisoner Cell Block H and Aussie Rules when I got home late at night and just had these aspirations to come to Australia. So coming to Australia and, and landing a job within, you know, six or seven months at the most iconic building in the world, uh, one of, um, was, you know, it was massive for me, you know, and, and I just I just went, you know what, well, it doesn't matter what challenges are thrown at me, I'm just going to have a crack at it, you know what I mean? And, you know, my background in the UK was, was fine dining. I, I worked in some, you know, prince, prestigious hotels and and so I got my my base um you know I worked with some very talented um chefs back in the UK a guy called Michael Kitts um you know has been a a big mentor and a massive part of my my career to where it is now if it wasn't for what he did for me as a person you know it was um you know I probably wouldn't be here I mean but having said that there was a you know he's one of many people that sort of Help me through my career, you know, and get me to where I am today. So, well, take us back to the UK. What sort of role did food play in your family growing up? Um, look, my, you know, we, you know, I was back in the days we made the family never really had much. We, uh, um, you know, come from a sort of middle class sort of family and you know we didn't really have a great deal of money i've got five brothers and sisters and and you know but one thing that i do remember my father was a phenomenal cook um and had this talent and it didn't matter what was in the house he just somehow would go to any cupboard and you know and he never measured anything he'd just throw stuff in a pot and you know he might have um you know, especially around Christmas time, um, there was a lot of like you know pigeon shooting and you know um, pheasant and partridge and all that sort of stuff. So we used to um, around that time, especially my my father. I don't know where he got them from, but he, you know whoever was shooting them down, but he'd have them hang up hung up in the in the garage. And as kids, we'd walk through the garage, and there'd be you know you know, 10 or 12 different game birds, you know, hanging up on a piece of string. And occasionally he would, you know, as you're walking through the garage with him, he, he might just tap on the birds. And, and I always used to wonder why he did that. 
And then I asked the question one day as, you know, as the years, you know, we, we got older and stuff, and he was basically he was waiting for that first maggot to drop from the bird, right? And that was to him was to say that they were ready, ready for plucking um, and gutting because, you know, back in the day you used to hang the birds to develop all that flavour. Um, and obviously in the UK it was cold. So, um, and then... So then what would happen is we'd, you know, we'd have the challenge as kids of plucking and gutting the birds and stuff. And it's, it's quite funny because my sister, uh, it'd be probably, you know, unfortunately my father passed away um, about 30 years ago. But, um, you know, the, 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 my sister sent this, this video of us sitting on milk crates in the kitchen plucking and gutting pheasants and partridges um, as kids. So it was it was... Food was always, it played a part and we always used to sit down at least once a week um, round the table as kids and, you know, we had, you know, seven um, seven of us sat around this big round table in the lounge room. We would always have Sunday dinner together, um, you know, and the funny, thing, the funny thing was, and everyone still, still reminds me of this today, to this day, is I used to wait until everyone had finished their meals at the dinner table and I would go around everyone's plates and clean up what they'd left. I don't know why. <laughs> you know, um, it was, and that was my thing. So I suppose from a very early age, food was, was you know, it was, it was a big part of what we did. And, you know, my father used to, as I said, used to cook some amazing meals and, I can always remember um, whenever the rabbit was being cooked that he'd tell all the rest of the siblings that it was chicken, chicken, um, and I would stand over the stove with him and he'd just throw this and that in the uh, in the pot and get away and we'd be tasting it. I suppose that's probably where my interest came from it, you know what I mean? Um, but he used to, he used to, one of my great memories is, is soft cods row. And back in the UK, the cods row that you get was, you know, if you, he used to poach it in milk and garlic and, you know, some thyme and rosemary, um, let it cool down a little bit and then dust it through seasoned flour and pan fry it. And my mum always, um, she'd always bake bread because, you know, we couldn't really afford to buy bread. Um, so, but she would always bake the bread um, and he'd toast some of the homemade chunky bread that he'd slice and pan fry this cod's row um, and put salt and pepper on it and just spread that all over. You spread it all over the toast. It was, it was a great food memory, a great food memory. Um, you know, and, and things like that with... You know, pickled walnuts. So we used to pickle walnuts, and you, know, you might slice a couple of them and put them on the cotter as well for a bit of acidity to cut through it. And you know, it's all this, all this old sort of, you know, cheap food. You know, in them times, which has now become a bit of a delicacy, I suppose. Tell us about the beginnings of your career. Do you have any stories of what it was like, sort of, in the first couple of years in a commercial kitchen? It was hard. It was it was very hard. I mean, I I I went to college for a couple of years and trained and 
got got that under my belt and you know I, I i was a bit of a rat bag as a kid to be honest with you anthony i uh i didn't go to school much um i walked away with no real grades per se um and my kids are going to probably listen to this at some point now and i've never ever told that um because you want to be that sort of great father figure. But I, I was I was a shocker as a kid. I was, you know, I was out, you know, fighting for anything I could get hold of. And I used to scramble on motorbikes and need to steal motorbikes to be able to get parts for motorbikes. So anyway, I didn't go to school much. But, um, you know, I, 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 I suppose, you know, I got a bit of a, a leg up and decided I needed to do something. And there was a connection with a friend um, that had gone to college, and I went, you know what, I, lo- I love the whole food thing. And, mate, you didn't need any qualifications to go to um, catering college. I thought, this is perfect. I love food, go to catering college. So I remember going off to catering college initially, and um, in the first three months of being there, um, I had this Welsh, Welsh teacher, um, and I won't tell you exactly what he said to me, but I'll, I'll – a bit of an outline, but he pulled me to one side and he basically said, sort yourself out or get out. Because, you know, there was four classes, you know, of about 30 to 35 students. And my, I was coming bottom of the all the classes in everything that I did from a um, from the, the, the written side of stuff. But in the classes itself, I was, you know, it was, it was great. I enjoyed myself and... You know, I was cooking good food and, you know, but I just couldn't get that written side sorted out. But that's uh, him saying that gave me a bit of a kick up the ass. And I went, you know, what? I've, you know, I've, I've got this far. I'm enjoying it. I need to apply myself to that, that side of things to make it work. So I sort of went over the next six months from becoming bottom of the class to, you know, third. in. I think I ended up finishing um, my course third in the whole of the, the four classes which was, you know, I was pretty proud of myself, to say the least, you know, someone that's, you know, sort of left school with nothing. Um, and that, I suppose, gave me a bit more of a um, the drive, I suppose, to, to keep going. I enjoyed it. There was, you know, food was becoming a, a massive part of my life. It was the time when, around the time when Marco, people like Marco Pierre White was exploding and, you know, and I, I thought to myself, I need to get to London. So I managed to... Um, get out through my TAFE teacher, uh, through my college teacher, a uh, guy called Alan Deegan, um, you know, get a, um, a stage at the, the Ritz Casino um, down in Green Park um, and a stage at Claridge's um, Hotel. So I sort of did both. And, you know, I was, I was seeing a girl at the time back in my hometown and she didn't want me to leave and this, and I was like, what do I do? And, but I'd really enjoyed the Ritz Casino. Um, I think Claridge's for me at that particular time, I just felt like you were a bit more of a number, um, whereas the casino was a bit more of a tight family. Um, I ended up taking a job at the Ritz Casino um, and it was just mind-blowing you know I, I sort of met and i've still got at home a, a signed autograph from you know joan collins um who sort of undressed me with her eyes when you know i asked if i asked, <laughs> i asked the waiter to go out and see if she'd you know 
give me her autograph. And she said, I'm not signing it unless it comes out. So I went out to the table and, you know, she, Joan Collins was sort of in a heyday there and, you know, she, you just felt like you were being stripped naked. It was quite, I was, you know, a little bit, little bit nerve-wracking to say the least, you know what I mean? So um, got her autograph and, you know, I, I, my, I worked with some very, very inspirational chefs. Uh, the late John King, who was, was my head chef, and, you know, he was a phenomenal guy and, and chef and that sort of introduced me to the whole world of, um, you know, competition work and, you know, so I, you know, went to, you know, um, yeah, um, the southwest of England and won gold medals and, uh, Hotel Olympia and won silver medals and bronze medals and and it just it was just you know an eye opener to working with great people and and phenomenal produce um, and then um, I went down to Les Ambassadors on Hyde Park Corner which John King moved over to that was another casino and still to this day is a um, you know one of London's top casinos um, and uh, worked there for a period of time and then um, got introduced to a guy called Michael Kitts who was working at the Souffle next door um, and that was one star at the time um, and he was opening up a hotel in the southwest of England in Bristol um, and uh, went down with a team of 13 of us and I literally worked for like seven months with no day off and my feet were bleeding. Um, got promoted through the ranks quite quickly just through just sheer tenacity and just working working my, my heart out, I suppose. Um, but then it got, it got to a point where I was, because I'd grafted for so many years and I'd never really taken any time off um, and I just went, you know, it's, I, I need a bit of a break. And then I moved back to my hometown of rugby and sort of worked into a um, couple of places there. And I suppose it was always in my with my intentions of travelling, and that's where it sort of all started to to you know think about starting to leave the UK. So I got some money together and uh, put that to one side, and and. Um, you know, me and my brother, we started getting up to our old tricks and becoming rat bags again. It was just like, mate, if I, if I, if I don't leave, um, I'm either going to go to jail, um, you know, or I've got to take the opportunity and get out of there. And one Sunday night, we uh, there was a whole load of us around the around the house, and and I turned around and said, look, I'm I'm going, I'm getting out of there. I've had enough. So, oh, yeah, where are you going? Mate, let's just let's just go off to the Greek islands, you know. Mate, it was a bit of a craze thing then, and and uh, I goes, I'm booking my flight tomorrow morning, and my brother came to me with his flight money, and literally from the Sunday by the Wednesday, we we're on a plane um, off to the Greek islands, and mate, and we've never turned back, and went out to the Greek islands, lived in the Greek islands for a couple of years. Um, you know, sort of on and off, going back and travelled all around the Middle East and, you know, just had a lot of fun. But, you know, look, the Greek islands were great because, you know, not only did you have the weather and you could have a lot of fun and party, but, you know, I was working in a restaurant right on the beach, um, you know, cooking Mediterranean-style food. Um, and it sort of, I suppose, opens, you know, I was predominantly... Um, trained in sort of French English cuisine. So 
going off to the Greek islands, it sort of just changed everything and allowed, made me realise that food didn't have to be that heavy sort of, you know, French um, English cuisine and it could be lighter and a bit more, you know, and still keeping simple. Um, but, yeah, it just changed, changed my outlook on food, I suppose. Um, yeah, and then, you know, sort of met people on the way and, um, you know, ended up in, in Johannesburg in, in Africa, um, you know, which was a bit of an eye-opener, you know. I was sort of pulled up at a friend's house and, you know, in Joburg thinking, Jesus, look at this place. This is, this is a mansion. It's got, you know, big fences and barbed wire. And I'm thinking, God, these guys must be loaded. Um, but not that they were loaded. It was just pure security because of how volatile the place was. And it was like, you know, after being there for a few weeks, you go, okay, this is probably not the place I really want to stay. And, you, you, you know, Joburg was, you know, I think at that particular point in time was like one of the third or was the third most volatile country in the world. Um, so I decided to get out of that. We, you know, there was a few of us that went there and people were buying combi vans and this, that and the other. And I was travelling with an Irish mate of mine and, and he said, he goes, hey, he goes, come and have a look at this. And I walked around the corner of this car yard and we there was this 1971 Chevy Impala and we ended up, we ended up buying it. And, you know, we travelled around, you know, South Africa, all the garden route and um, ended up in Cape Town and lived in Cape Town for about four months and um, which was an amazing experience. And look, whilst whilst I was in Cape Town, I really wanted to work in the food scene. Um, I, did a, I did a couple of trials on the waterfront and it was just, it was, a, look, and, and I'm, I know it's changed now because you've got people like Liam Tomlinson's that's, you know, that's down in Cape Town and I see what he's doing. And it, and I'm sure it was probably then. I don't know if it was me not looking hard enough, um, but I did a couple of trials and I, I sort of got a, probably a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth because you'd, I'd gone work in these seafood restaurants and my, everything was frozen. And I couldn't understand why there was all these fishing trawlers, um, but yet everything was frozen coming out into the restaurants and, you know, and you defro I didn't get it, you know what I mean? So that sort of put it, and I just went, you know what, let's just have some more fun. And I, I had a bit of money in my bank at the time as well. So I sort of, I probably ate more food and, and messed around a little bit more than probably I looked to work. Um, but, you know, I enjoyed myself. So then we travelled back up to Joburg. I dropped the car off and then I literally hitched, uh, went up to Pretoria, um, caught the train through um, Swaziland into Maputo, Mozambique, and everyone was like, you're mad. They're out of civil war three years. Um, you're mad. What are you doing? So there was a few of us. There was like uh, four of us that decided to hitch through Mozambique. Um, that was one of the most life-changing moments um, or times of my life. Um, and, you know, I'm actually, it's funny because it's literally just a few weeks ago I started talking to my kids because I actually want to take them back to Africa and four by four across the Serengeti. Um, so, I, 
So I lived in, we travelled up through Mozambique. I caught um, hitch lifts with the Italian ambassador, ambassador on safari. Um, lived on a, we met, hitched a lift with this Dutch guy and ended up in a place called Inyambani. And um, we just sat having a glass of wine and a bit of a chat and, we sort of asked him who, you know, idle chit-chat, oh, who lives next door? And he goes, oh, a couple of commercial fishermen. They don't don't really ever see them. And literally about half an hour later, these two young South African guys popped up and got chained to them, and they said, you know, why don't you come and stay on the beach with us? And we were like, yeah, why not? So they drove us in their four-by-fours, um, and it was literally off-road. You couldn't get there by car. And we got there, and it was like a scene out of MASH um, with the big green tents. They had no running water. They had to pump it from a well. Um, you know, there's lots of coconut trees. And, and we literally lived on, on the beach for about eight weeks. Um, but it, the exposure to... You I'd go out and, and I'd, that's where I really sort of enjoyed from a cooking side of things being in Africa because I'd go down the beach and there'd be the locals with their fishing nets pulling the fishing and I'd go in and start helping them pull the nets in. They're all a little bit, you know, what's what's this white man doing? Now I'd, I'd help them pull it in at all because it couldn't speak the language and I'd just walk off once or seen what they pulled in and you know over a course of eight weeks I'm doing this a couple of times a week and they started giving me fish so um you know I'd, I'd start cooking in in what the it's like a fishy's um a witch's cauldron called a poiki um I'd start cooking up some you know just some simple braises and roasting fish and and it was just it was it was eight weeks of some of the the most memorable times you know you'd have prawns and you know all this different you know types of fish and we'd go out and do a bit of spear fishing because these guys did a lot of it so they you know you go out and no tanks just with the meter long fins and you know you get lobsters and i think i've got some pictures somewhere with about 10 lobsters tails hanging out of this poiki um you know, so that was, you know, that again was exposing me just to some amazing, amazing fresh produce. And, um, yeah, so then from from that, I sort of hitched my way all the way up through um, uh, uh, Namibia. Um, well, I went into the top of Namibia. I went up through Zimbabwe um, from Malawi, did the Victoria Falls, caught malaria. Um, that knocked me about. Um, went into Zambia and then ended up in, I lived in Lake Malawi for about four months, um, which was another amazing experience, but never, never got into Tanzania, which I, I really wanted to do and go and do the, do the Serengeti. Um, and then from there, I ended up in Australia, hence where the silly goatee beard and the long hair came from. <laughs> After the extraordinary, extraordinary experiences that you had in Africa and South Africa, what, what did you think of the food culture of Sydney when you landed here? Um, oh, look, it was totally different. I mean, at that at that particular time, there was a lot of this fusion stuff going on, um, you know, which mm. also had the nickname Confusion um, because, you know, everyone thought that they could, you know, throw a bit of Asian into a, Mediterranean style food and and it does whilst some of it worked 
there was a lot of it that was hence the name confusion. Um, so there was, you know, but at the same time, there was, you know, there was a lot of great restaurants. You know, at that time, you got um, number seven um, at the Park Hyatt was around. You, you know, you had uh, Marinese was was going strong, and you know, um, yeah. So there was a lot of these places which, you know, I was learning about, and you know, um, getting a bit of inspiration, and you know. Um, but I, but I thought it was, it, it, it was, it was definitely different to what I was used to. Um, but I think at that, I think there was, you know, there was, it was, it was quite experimental at the same time. Um, you know, Tetsuya was coming up, you know, and becoming, you know, a big name in them times. And, you know, you'd see how light and fresh his food was, um, which was, you know, again, sort of very, very inspirational and you know it was uh who else was uh you know there was deep Ma sawyer and you know all the guys you know it was it was you know and and, and liam and then liam was you know sort of coming up through the through the ranks and becoming a um a big player um you know and then yeah then i, I was sort of working at the opera house um uh for a, for a couple of years and and you know, I'd, I'd, I'd basically, I'd worked in functioned. I'd worked in, um, I'd worked in the concourse, um, which is now Opera Bar, um, and that was that was a funny old place um, because it was everything was out of Ben Marie's. There was no real cooking. Um, it was that was quite that was a bit of an eye opener to say the least. Um, and then I. Um, then I went. I was I was leaving to go back for. I hadn't been home for quite a few years because of the travelling, and I needed to get back and see my family. And um, and then Michael Moore was and Trevelyan Bay were sort of taking over Benelong because Gay uh, Yanni had um, sort of departed from the Opera House, um, and he was. They were coming to take over Benelong, and. Um, I sort of this, you know, this could be a great opportunity. So anyway, so I went off back to the UK and I came back and um, I can remember uh, um, saying to Dave, you know, Dave, you know, I'd really love to, you know, because they were they needed a sous chef at the at the Benelong restaurant. I said I really want to have a crack at going for this job. And he he said, well, you know, I said, who do I see? And he said, go and speak to Trevelyan. So I went to Trevelyan Bale and I said, mate, I want to apply for this job. And he, he basically looked at me and he said, look, I don't think you're up to it. And I was like, F you. I goes, mate, mate. And I, was, I was a bit annoyed and I was like, mate, just give me one week. Look me in the eye at the end of the week and tell me I'm no good. I goes, you don't have to pay me. I said, mate, just give me one week to prove myself. And... Um, the rest was sort of history. Um, they ended up paying me for the week. And, um, you know, I, I ended up having, and, you know, the, the privilege of working with a guy called Andy Turner. And we sort of, we were like being sort of co-head chefs and, and stuff. Um, and he was, mate, he was one of Marco's original guys. Um, I, learned, I learned a shitload off him. He was, he was such a great good guy. Um, very talented um, chef, 
and we worked at Benlong for I think it was about a year and then it sort of went a little bit tits up and Michael departed, Trevelyan departed um, and then one Sunday night um, we're working, me and Andy used to, you know, swap, we'd have a cook or we'd do the pass or, you know, jump on a section, wherever. And I was on the pass on the Sunday night and the phone rang at about eight o'clock and uh, uh, I picked up the phone. I goes, yep, yeah, been long kitchen, Simon. Yep. Yeah, hi, mate. My name's uh, Matt Moran and I was just wondering if you've got time for a, a bit of a chat. I goes, mate, I'm in the middle of service. Like, can you call me back tomorrow? And I put the phone down. And Andy's looking at me. And I say, so Andy's about six foot four, right? So he's bent down back under the pass looking through at me. And I went, he goes, who was that? And I goes, some guy called Matt Moran. And he goes, and I looked at him. I goes, I should have taken that phone call, shouldn't I? And he goes, yeah, probably. And what I didn't know in the background was Matt was selling Bomb Femme to Andy Turner and Michael Moore um, and at the same time was headhunting me to go to ARIA. So, yeah, so I was like, God, have I made a mistake here? So anyway, I ended up talking to Matty the next day and we hooked up a meeting and, you know, we sort of headed off, you know, two peas in the pot pretty much straight away. And... Um, Okay, he turned around to me and he said, mate, do you want to come and do this function? It's actually in the toaster in the penthouse suite. I was like, yep. And, of course, I was coming to leave Ben Long and, you know, in those days, used to, when you leave a, a business, you got absolutely, if they liked you, you got slaughtered in a sense of they're trying to stitch you up in, you know, whatever they can. And I can remember someone, one of the kids in the, in the Ben Long restaurant coming to me with a bucket full of fishy's guts and crap and, and I could see it coming so I put my hand out to stop it but it was one of them metal bu um, buckets with the, the handles on it and as it came up it hooked into my hand and literally ripped my hand open so I've got this I've got this cracking scar on my hand to this day and uh, and they're all covering me and stuff and I went guys I get it fun and jokes but look at this. And I literally had to, and there was a lot of adrenaline going. I literally had to open my hand up and show them how badly ripped my hand was for them all to go, oh, shit, I think we should stop. Um, so I ended up having all these stitches. And, you know, the first time I got to work with Matt in this event was, you know, with my hand stitched up. So I couldn't really do anything because my hand was wrapped up and, you know, but we ended up doing this great event in the penthouse and, you know, and then the rest was history, really. I, you know, started working at ARIA and, you know, watching the, you know, I remember going around there initially at the start and it was just all breeze blocks and just a, a shell, basically, um, you know, and then obviously seeing where it's gone over the years is, is just phenomenal. In part two of our chat with Simon Sandal, he tells us about building the Aria brand with Matt Moran, the creation of Baronia Kitchen, and the day that changed his life forevermore. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram 
at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.